Welcome back to the show. My first guest is Constantine Markides, a New York-based swim trainer and author. His reporting credits include Cypress Mail, Rodale Institute Book Reviews for NewFarm.org, Rolling Stone, Explosion Proof Magazine, and Medias International. He maintains a blog of monthly essays at www.fourthnight.com, which continues from his founding and hosting the first blog-based literary reality show of the same name. He's completed five manuscripts. We're going to hear all of them because I'm going to try to say them all. Hephaestus, Blue, A Baton of Four Fibra, Fourth Fiction, and Comfort Me with Malus. He was the stringer for CNN's Anderson Cooper during the Lebanon War in 2006 and has appeared on Canadian Broadcasting Corporation and American Public Medium's Marketplace. His time in the water creds founded on his high school state championship, swimming for Columbia University, and coaching at Imagine Swimming. A speaker of both Spanish and Greek, Mr. Marquides completed his BA in philosophy at Columbia University and his master in English at University College London. He is the co-author of Chasing Water, Elegy of an Olympian, published by Akashic Books and the topic of today's interview. He comes to us today from Brooklyn. Welcome to Ask a Leader and hopefully a spoiler-free interview, Constantine Marquides. Hi. Good to be here. Good to be together. One takes pause at biographies, memoirs for relatively young personalities. The subject and co-writer of Chasing Water, Anthony Irvin, is now 35, but you two managed to pull off a worthy story with something for everyone. It's part humanities reader, part sensitively rendered family chronicle, part physics primer, and part jock shocker. Congratulations on a fine, nearly renaissance read. Thank you very much. And it might even bring readers under the age of 30 back to books. (laughs) I hope so. (laughs) Well, I hasten to add and emphasize that you are a co-writer, not a ghost writer. And so how easy, Constantine, was it or how difficult was it for the two of you to negotiate this? Well, we worked very closely together uh, on the book, and it's sort of been in the works for a long time, since since 2012, since before 2012. He actually, we first met each other training in New York um, at a swim school, and we, our area of commonality had more to do actually with literature and uh, travel and so on, rather than swimming at the time. It he comes through. Competitively. Sorry? It does come through. It does come through, right. And so, o- over this time, uh, when I first put, when he started swimming fast, I proposed, uh, "What about just writing a magazine piece?" We had no idea it was going to. He was going to take it as far as he did, and from from essentially not being known at all after winning gold twelve years earlier, he made the Olympic team in two thousand twelve, and that's when the Rolling Stone piece came out. Right. And uh, af- after that, we we really decided to go for it with this book. He really wanted something more literary and polyphonic multi-voice than your standard sports biography. And uh, so that made us a good pair because that's also, I'm most happy when writing in multiple voices and shifting narrative styles. And we're both attracted to the bizarre and the unconventional. And so we, we spent a lot of time. I have hundreds of pages of, uh, you know, our discussions together. We actually went to an Island off the coast of Maine for several weeks, a lobstering Island. And we hold up, 
in the, uh, a former art, an artist's studio who used to be a bodybuilder, actually, and so she had a weight, a weight set there. So he was able to still lift weights and train that way, even though he couldn't swim because it was winter in Maine. But we essentially plotted out the entire book there, fleshed it out. He had to go to some pretty dark places, as you know, yes. you, you know later in the book. But um, I think as a result of that, because we, we know each other, we weren't afraid to, to go to these tough places and we could call each other out when we needed to. So it, it, it really it worked that well. Um, we had plenty of fights along the way, though. <laughs> we definitely did. But I think that made it a better book as a result because neither of us would tiptoe around things. Well, where did you two draw the line and say, okay, now let's put this together? I think you've answered that to some extent, but he was training again for the 2012 Olympics, and we don't, you know, there's still four more years of a swimming career as you're re- you were releasing this book pre-Rio Summer Olympics. So so you managed to draw the line as, all right, we're going into the 2012 Olympics. Is that how that happened? Right. Well, it happened, essentially, it was after the 2012 Olympics that, we basically wrote the book proposal right. and we got the book deal. And the idea was that his narrative story, at least within the book, it ends with the 2012 Olympics. It actually ends with a dinner uh, where his family and friends are all there supporting him after his uh, final swim in 2012. And that, that, for him, that's the most important thing, family and friends, and he wanted that message. And actually what's now the epilogue of the book originally was part of the book, but he wanted to end it on that dinner because to him that was the proper conclusion for the book. So when we, when we did this, we, we had no idea that there was going to be a gold <laughs> in the Two. 53 in 2016. Right, yeah. right. And in the relay also, yeah. Exactly. Well, so after the book was published, as I was, as we were talking about, you've got that fairy tale resumption of his wins in Rio, uh, and, and he gets to be the oldest gold medalist in swimming, no less. That's right. Yeah, there, there are a lot of interesting, um, the oldest, uh, well, actually, this is quite interesting. Phelps, when he won, I think it was the 200 Butterfly a few days earlier, was the oldest American, the oldest swimmer. He, he, he broke the record, but then three days later, Anthony broke that from him as a 35-year-old. Phelps was, uh, I think Phelps was 31. So, uh, yeah, no, it's the oldest. And also, I believe, the longest gap between gold medals for swimmers. So there's one in 2000 gold medal in the 50 freestyle. And in the same event, 16 years later, he has another gold medal. And that, that's actually, to me, even more fascinating as a, because it's what happened in those intervening years that, are, that make that gold all the more remarkable. And, uh, completely. That's right. Tw- uh, 16 years. So maybe Akashic Books will humor all of us and put one, not, I mean, not that we want to mess with your carefully orchestrated mapping of this trajectory, but uh, like an epi-epilogue because of this accomplishment in 2016. Right. There I was thinking I was done. (laughs) Actually, I'm I'm working on that right now. uh, There's going to be a postscript, it looks like, possibly. Perfect. Something something we're discussing. Oh, I think so, because otherwise everybody's going to go right back to where you don't want them to go is online and check out what else is new. So, well... It's really amazing. I promise a spoiler-free interview. I don't think I'm giving away that. Ma- Anthony managed to rack up accidentally as well as intentionally an extraordinary array of make-and-break uh, relationships. 
and I'm not even referring to his brushes with chronic injury or near death. So every one of them has a pretty, pretty critical role in where he came along to, toward this redemptive sort of conclusion. Mm. Yeah, and he always, after Rio, actually, after his gold, he talks about the people in his life that have helped him get where he is. And uh, he's definitely had a, not only remarkable coaches and trainers and so on, and he's had the finest out there, but also friends and uh, everything from essentially mystics to uh, someone he refers to, Delez, his godmother, who was a former motorcyclist who now became, really helped him out through some dark times. I, he's had a huge network of very colorful people, which is what also attracted me to the story because of the of the characters and 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 not only characters but also people who who really just gave a lot to him and um, you know in many ways the book for him it was very important for it to be an ode to these people also. And it does it does do that for sure. Well, for those of you who've just joined us, you're listening to Ask a Leader on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. My guest is Constantine Marquitis, author, and he's a swim trainer, talking about his recently released book, which he has co-written with Olympian Anthony Irvin. It's entitled Chasing Water, Elegy of an Olympian, published by Akashic Books. So I've always wondered... How an athlete coming off of the peak experience of a winning event, processing, answering a journal's pedestrian questions. And I also think, now this wasn't Anthony's concern, but I also wonder for a non-English speaking athlete, when they've come off of the peak achievement and they've got to translate they're, you know, they're all pumped up and they've got to translate from their mother tongue into English, some, some sort of squeaky thing. But this, you give us a chance to see behind the sort of scene of how, how an athlete processes that and how, whether or not their the athletes have it in their DNA to be thoughtful, thinking, philosopher, king athletes. Mm. Well, I think the, uh, you know, it's in 2000, he really feels that he wasn't ready for that, for that gold. And uh, he, at the time, was heralded as the first first black swimmer to make the Olympics. And, uh, and there was also the issue of Tourette's that he had. So he came with, with quite a few labels that he wasn't, he didn't feel ready to deal with himself at the time. So it really derailed him in many ways. And when he actually won that gold in Sydney, the first question that was asked by the NBC correspondent was, I noticed you were, congratulations, I noticed you were, blinking a lot on the blocks was like your yeah. Tourette's and he just froze and then afterwards asked him how does it feel to be the first african-american swimmer and he he gave his kind of canned answer he, he wasn't ready for these questions no and i think now he he really is ready and uh, in some ways this book was also addressing in a, a preparation in some ways for them and um so i think he he now feels like not only is he more ready but he also recognizes i think the significance of uh, of what the what the win means, whereas maybe he didn't before. Well, I mean, an athlete is an elite athlete is who they are from repetitive practice, and if they're not practicing public speaking, that 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 sort of letdown is should be of no surprise to anybody, including the athlete. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. So I mean, it's you know, it's a, it's always been for him this challenge the. To maintain his uh, kind of intellectual vigor, if you will, and uh-huh. not just fall into the, this kind of blank training mode, a kind of being a, a performing body. 
and and I think when he falls into that, it really causes him trouble because he feels in some way uh, sort of psychologically displaced, like he's not who he should be. And I think what he's found now is a way to both perform, to be that swimming performer, but but to also incorporate other aspects, these other important facets of his life into his existence right now. So he can still be involved with music. At a press conference, he can maybe throw out a Shakespeare quote. I mean, I, he actually, a while ago, when he, he was selected as captain of the Olympic team this year, and I was, I was I, I can't remember if we were texting or talking on the phone, but he, he told me that he was reading, uh, I think it was Henry the, it was, it was a Shakespeare play, maybe Henry the or something, I'm not sure what it was, but it was funny to me because he was about to give a speech to the team. And I just found that so amusing that he's reading Shakespeare to prepare for his speech. <laughs> that is fine. That is fine. Well, throughout Chasing Water, you've drawn on the close parallel between sports and war. It's not an idle comparison since you yourself, you've been on some front lines there in Lebanon, as I mentioned in your introduction. So um, you want to talk a little bit about how tight that analogy is? Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't want to make too much of that in the sense that I, I, I wasn't in combat or anything. I was... Uh, I was reporting at the time. Oh, you're and, going to do uh, us one better than Brian Williams. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was, I was, it was a bit from afar. I mean, you could see the strikes and uh, the, actually I thought when I was there for a moment, there was a lightning storm going on, but it was, it was strikes and it was the clouds of, from the uh, explosions. <laughs> but what you do feel is this, uh, in these environments, the, kind, the, the significance of everything is so much more powerful than it, than it usually is, and uh, it, it can often be like that, feel like that during these intense moments at swim meets. But I think in that uh, analogy, I, I think it was more that there is something about a, lo- a lot of the issues that we associate with war and with also athletic performance, victory, defeat, uh, patriotism. There's a kind of the camaraderie you have among athletes, also tremendous aggression and antagonism. Yes. All of this, there is a, there's some interesting areas of overlap. But I know Anthony was very was a bit hesitant about this section when I was writing it, and this because he didn't want to suggest in any way. He he didn't even want me to suggest that he is in any way like a war hero, right? Because he he, he thought it was more than a far-fetched idea and that it, it wasn't accurate. So I think I was careful. We were careful about how I wrote that. So it was more to suggest that there are areas of commonality. Well, and then. Uh, but- uh, I, not to not to scoop because I, I am going to ask about a couple of excerpts for you to read in just a bit. But near the end, you're and I'm going to quote. This is your voice, not Anthony's. Is screaming and howling in public is generally frowned upon, so sports offer us a socially sanctioned place where we can all do it together without killing each other. So, so right. some, like this, what the the crowd response in the in the battle zone is is all about. Well, so do you have some excerpts? I, I'm interested, perhaps in the sort of the water physics that both of you address in bo- each of your voices. Is that a, um, an excerpt that you could share with our listeners at this time? Uh, how he, as a swimmer, is sort yes. of the technical aspect of it. Exactly. Now. Sure, yeah. There's a, um, one of the chapters called Over the Water Here. I think maybe I can, um, I'll just, I can first read a, a bit from my section. This is actually when I first, when I first saw him swim, I'll, I'll read that one. That might be an interesting one. Uh, it just gives a sense of, here we go. 
Okay, this was while we were we were teaching in New York together, and I had never at the time, even though I knew about his gold medal win in 2000, I'd never seen him swim. And uh, one yes. of his one of his friends just challenged him to a race, and he said yes. I was at the far end of the pool, in the next lane over from Irvin. At the start command, his opponent made the mistake of dropping underwater to push off instead of exploding immediately off the wall. It cost him from the start. It was over from the start. Little did I know then that seeing Irvin win right off the start was its own rare sighting, like encountering a snow leopard in the wild or witnessing the northern lights from the lower 48. After the race, Irvin gave Richard hell over his start, which was probably as much his way of downplaying the win as it was banter. But even without the advantage of the wall, it wouldn't have mattered. It wasn't even close. And his opponent, Richard Hall, was no pushover. Richard was Irvin's teammate at Berkeley, not to mention the brother of 10-time Olympic medalist Gary Hall Jr., so he had plenty of genetic mojo going for him, too. It was strange to reconcile the unhurried, cerebral Irvin I knew with the swift, aquatic creature slicing toward me. But it wasn't even his speed that astonished me, so much as the way in which he traveled through the water. Although through isn't even exactly right. There was something in his swimming I'd never seen before. He seemed to swim not through the water, but over it. His, hair, his head reared up from the surface like a speedboat's prow does when the throttle is revved, or like a movie rendition of an attacking great white. His arms, meanwhile, drove down rhythmically on each side in a long, loping rhythm. He also seemed big, far larger in water than on land, as if the water upon push-off had an Alice in Wonderland-esque drink-me effect on him, except in enlargement rather than shrinkage. As he approached the wall, the whole thing took under 10 seconds. The damnedest thing happened. Since I was in the neighboring lane, I had a head-on view from the water. As he neared me, it seemed, probably due to his elevated body position, high elbows and towering arms, as well as to my water-level perspective, like he was swimming downward. It was as if his body had generated a wave in the pool, and he was now hydroplaning down the face of it. His movement was smooth and powerful, like one of those waves surfers dream of that barrel up out of a glassy sea. So that's just a description when I first saw him swimming. That's in your voice. And you did you have an excerpt in Anthony's voice? Sure. Um, let's try this one here. Uh, so this is in Anthony's voice here. It ends the chapter. Many athletes are awesome trainers. They work out like demons, but then it means they replicate what they do in practice. They get locked into racing the same way they trained when their bodies were atrophied and broken down, swimming mechanically instead of by feeling. It's almost an active, athletic rigor mortis. Everybody will be in good shape at the big meets. It comes down to how much you understand about what you're doing and how much you don't. For me, swimming is thinking about the lines, proprioception, feeling where the resistance is and trying to place it in the right direction. I don't think about my hands when I pull, just my body position, just keeping my thought directed in my line of travel. To focus on the pull is to place my awareness elsewhere than the line I want to travel in. Of course, I'm not a thin line. I'm a mass that rotates around that line. But the farther I pull away from that line, the more energy is expelled outward rather than in the line I want to travel in. It's like riding a motorcycle. If there's a pothole, you should recognize it but not look at it because you'll start to head for it. I'm always searching for a feeling of going faster. Again, it's like the sensation on the motorcycle. When you let off the throttle, when it's still in gear, you feel the pull backward of slowing down. The opposite is when you're throttling. You feel that tug and acceleration forward. It's the same when you're moving from 10 miles an hour to 20 or from 60 to 70. That's always the plan, doing the things I know will help me achieve that feeling of going faster. I don't try to hold on to any specific technique. My only technique is fast, trying to achieve fast. That's all I've got. It's more abstract than measurable. 
there's a point when I'm at full throttle, I'm just trying to maintain the speed. But even then, I try not to let myself get tricked into complacency that I'm at top speed. Only for the hundred will I try to limit myself so that I'm not desperately clawing for that feeling and failing and finding myself slogging through molasses. And there's always a sense of desperation to achieve that feeling of fast. Chase the dragon long enough and the dragon starts chasing you. And that, when folks get a chance to pick up their copy, Chasing Water, you can hear so many references he makes to his own experience that, that bring him to various interesting bouts, shall we say. So I really appreciated Constantine say near the at the near the end of the book i liked how you you kept calling him anthony and mm. you kept, when you're deferring to his mom's calling him right. the, i mean that's a full name she'd given him as that's well as tony when the, right. the num the name that Piers had referred him so that's just i guess a fan comment with during the yeah. book signing <laughs> so. right well well it's uh it's interesting because sherry all of his life now there's so many people that refer to anthony as tony and yet, when he was younger, Sherry would get phone calls, someone asking for Tony, and she would say, there's no Tony who lives here, and would hang up. Right. But it's almost become a bit of a, a sort of, it's become a cause now, a hopeless cause for her, because I almost feel like she just enjoys it at this point. She still will shoot people down when they use the word Tony, but uh, I, yeah, I do it. <laughs> it's out of respect and affection for Sherry, and she'd also probably have my head if I wrote this whole book referring to him as Tony. <laughs> so... So I stayed with, with Anthony. Right. A tip of your hat to the mother. <laughs> yeah. Who spawned sure. him. Yes. Well, so anyone listening from the Bay Area, they'll be able to meet the two of you at Books, Inc. in Berkeley. That's on September 13th. And so I'd like to know whether you had planned on any appearances in Southern California where this whole story began. Well, we actually did have a, a book event in Southern California. We haven't had one yet in Berkeley, which we have now coming up. But we, we had in April when the book came out, we had one event, a launch in New York, and we had a launch in Los Angeles. But that's not to say that maybe there won't be another one sometime, oh, I think, another event. <laughs> so. I think you'll, you want to come back, and I don't know if yeah. it, Orange County is a little bit off the Valencia-Burbank path of uh, where the story was transpiring, but that's something I, I'll keep a lookout for that. I'd love to do it in L.A. again. Yeah, okay. Great. Good. Well, I'll and suggest it. <laughs> I hope. I hope you do. For those of you who've just joined us, our guest here on Ask a Leader is Constantine Marquides, and he's the co-author of Chasing Water, Elegy of an Olympian, published by Akashic Books, talking about Anthony Irwin, now a Let's see, two, two time, three-time gold medal winner. He's tied a couple of those times, and uh, was it there one? Was there one bronze? I'm trying to keep track of that. Yeah, uh, he also has a uh, a silver, silver. right, right. And the listeners are welcome to the book to find out about the story behind where the first gold medal went, and you can you can almost you can hear where it's going. There's uh, some hints at that uh, earlier in the book until we get the. But, of course, no spoilers. So, no spoilers. So I would like for you to congratulate Anthony from all of us over here, both on his redemptive story as well as his golden results in Rio. Won't you do that? I will absolutely do so. And I, it's a little late in the game for me to insist on his staying safe and taking care. It's way too late for that. But <laughs> I, I hope that with his deeper, more mindful Zen and other practices that he is on a, 
a safer path to continue to rack up some really marvelous kinds of experiences and and keep on offering his observations in concert with you and with uh, other partners in his enterprises. He, he certainly is now. In fact, after Rio, after the gold medal, the extent of our partying involved a dinner. <laughs> so, yeah, times are very different now than they were before. Right. Well, Constantin Marquides, I so enjoyed this time with talking about this. Really, it is a remarkable book, and I wish you, it'll be fun watching to see what uh, other projects you're taking up, but thanks for taking the time today on Ask a Leader. Thank you. This was a, this was a pleasure. My guest was Constantine Marquides, author and swim trainer, talking about the recently released book, which he co-wrote with Anthony Irvin, entitled Chasing Water, Elegy of an Olympian, published by Akashic Books. One step.